you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. We're going to be looking at uh, this psalm in its entirety this afternoon. And as you can see, I've entitled the message, The Thought of God. And I borrowed this title from a book by a man named Morris Roberts. And this book is a collection of chapters that seek to set the reader's mind on the deep things of God. And in the first chapter, the author, speaking of David, quotes from 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, where it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And that's all the scriptures say about the matter. It doesn't tell us how he strengthened himself, only that he did. And yet what the author of this book contends, and and I wholeheartedly agree, is that whatever else this might mean, it must mean that he fixed his heart upon and thought deeply about who God is. Of course, we must do this too. We absolutely must seriously contemplate who God is, what he is like, what his thoughts are, what he's revealed to us about himself. It was A.W. Tozer who famously wrote these words, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our thoughts of God inform and shape our entire lives. What we think about him like nothing else impacts the way that we see the world and more importantly, the way that we see ourselves. When we meditate upon God, our convictions about him are more profoundly forged and then proceeding from this, our convictions about who we are and who we want to be are further solidified as well. This is what we see in Psalm 139. This psalm is one of the high points in God's word. It's one of the high points of God's word where it reveals to us a vision for who God is. It's incredibly theological. It's packed with wondrous truths about the nature and actions and infinite riches of his being. But listen, this theology is not merely information. It's extremely personal for us. We're going to see David in this psalm move from wonder to worship. We're going to see him go from astonishment to aspiration. We're going to see him go from contemplation to commitment. And this is what we want for all of us as well. That's what I'm after in this message. I want you to see and believe and have the desire to go deep in your thoughts about God and then to be led to deeper devotion to God. Look with me at your Bibles We're going to read together Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're going to look at this psalm together this afternoon in four sections. Six verses each, and first I want us to see in verses 1 through 6, that when I think about him, I believe God knows everything about me. God knows everything about me. We see here right away that God is involved personally in every second and in every detail of our lives. In verse 1, we, we read, David said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This word here translated search, it's used in the Bible of detailed and exhaustive investigations. David says to the Lord, you, you have examined me, you examine me, and you know me intimately. And of course, this isn't 
only true of the one who's writing this psalm. God knows each and every one of us perfectly. The psalmist is representative here of every man, every woman, and and every child on the face of this planet. Each one of us is an open book before him. Hebrews 4 and verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the Lord God of all the earth. He knows us better than our closest family. He knows us better than the best of friends. Surely he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what is plainly obvious, and he knows the innermost secrets of our hearts. What no one else sees, God sees. What no one else knows, God knows. He knows us exhaustively, inside and out. His eyes are on us, as we see in verses 2 and 3. Whether we're sitting down, whether we're standing up, whether we're out and about on our way, whether we're at home, asleep in our beds, Everything's covered here. There's never a time in our lives where God doesn't know exactly what we're doing. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? He knows what we're up to at every minute of the day, but look at the end of verse 2. You discern my thoughts from afar. God sees inside of us. He he sees what no one else sees. He sees what maybe we don't even understand. He, He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He perfectly knows our character, our motives, our desires, what brings us joy. He knows what we're truly treasuring, what we're afraid of, what we're angry about. He knows when we're content and when we're discontent. He knows when we're thankful and when we're ungrateful. He he knows when we're being selfish and prideful. He knows when we're being humble and selfless. He, He knows who or what we're worshiping. He knows when we're loving him and loving others. He he knows when we're surrendered to him and when we're cleaving for control. He knows when we're patient. And when we're impatient, he knows when we're feeling crippled by sorrow or disappointment, when we're confused and we don't know what we're supposed to think. He knows exactly what is going on inside our hearts at every moment. He knows where we're putting our hope and our trust. Then how about verse 4? He he hears every word that we speak, but not only does he hear every word that we speak, he knows it even before we say it out loud. He knows us. God knows us. There's no exception. He he hems us in and his hand is upon us, verse 5 says. And when David takes all of this in, he, he cannot help but to say that his mind is utterly blown. Verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is too much for us to fully comprehend. 
the theological term for the doctrine of God's perfect knowledge is his omniscience. Literally, this means he is all-knowing. That is what David is describing here in these first six verses. And, and we just, again, we cannot escape that this is not just some intellectual, you know, theological, wordy, textbook kind of stuff from some God who is just out there in some impersonal way. This is, this is not that at all. This is deeply personal. And so, we ask, what, what should our response be when we think about God and, and believe that this is true about Him? I think there are several responses that we can draw even just out of these first few verses. First, we see explicitly here in the text that we ought to be just utterly astounded. If you're listening to this, if if you're reading these words and, and you are not just absolutely gripped by the immense knowledge of God right now, pay attention. These are things that we simply cannot compute, and, and yet we can humbly say with the psalmist, I, I see some of the fullness of God's omniscience, but it is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I cannot grasp it all. I, I can't even begin to understand how God can know every second of the day, every thought, every millisecond, what is in my heart and what is in my mind. How He can discern my, my every emotion, my, my every volition, my every hope and dream. At every moment, you know, we, we might be able to think of a few things going through our minds at a moment, and, and yet God can see it all. And then I look around this room and I, I think, isn't it amazing that at, at one moment God knows what each and every one of us is thinking all at the exact same time? But then we multiply that by billions upon billions of people. It's unfathomable. And we ought to be utterly astounded at the knowledge of God. I hope you are. And I hope you're telling God about this in your prayers. This is precisely what's going on here in this psalm, right? David is exemplifying for us a second kind of response that we can have, we should have, to God's perfect knowledge. David is glorifying God by rehearsing back to him his own wonderful attributes. We see this in many of the Psalms. The psalmists are quite eager to tell God about God, aren't they? And we ought to do this too. As part of our worship, as as part of our prayer lives, we ought to just tell God how awesome He is and and for specific reasons. Another response we might have here is implicit in the text. I'm sure you've experienced it already. 
just in this short time, we've had uh, the word open before us, like a mirror peering into our souls. And, and, and of course, I'm talking about conviction. We stop and, and we meditate on how God knows everything going on in our hearts and in our lives. He knows our words. He knows our thoughts. He knows every action. We can't help but to be convicted because we know we fall short of His glory in the way that we live our lives. And if you're in Christ here today and you, and you think of this, you, you want to honor your Savior. You want to be living for Him and, and yet you know that God sees your life and you know that this ought to lead you to repentance. But if you're here, if you're listening today and you're not in Christ and you're hearing what, what God is putting before you this very hour of your life and you're wondering if, if you too should believe these things that we're talking about from God's Word, you're wondering, is this really true of God? Does He really know me like this? I need to tell you, it's true. It's true. God knows you. And so maybe you're thinking, well, what do I do? This, this is the most serious thing I've ever considered in my life. That there, there is a God and, and He looks down from heaven and he sees my life and there's nothing that escapes his notice. Well, let me tell you what the response to this is not. It's, it's not, I better turn my life around. I, I better start cleaning myself up. I, I better start thinking differently and acting differently and, and speaking differently. Then, then maybe God will, will look at the, the timeline of my life, the moments of my days, and, and then maybe... Just maybe he will say, okay, you've done it. You're, you've been good enough. That's not going to happen. That, that, the Bible clearly says that each and every one of us falls well short of the glory of God. We could never do it. Listen, th that God knows every single thing about us, this is damning news apart from Jesus Christ. So I stand here today to tell you that apart from Jesus Christ, God sees every part of your life and you are headed for His just judgment. But there's two wonderful words in the Bible that I also need to tell you about. Two words of good news. Two words that begin the, the best possible news that I could ever tell you, that anyone in this world could ever tell you. And those two words are, but God. But God. And I was reminded as we were singing this morning of Romans chapter 5. And I'll read for you these words from, from God's word. God says that for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Listen, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, I don't know where you've come from. I I don't know how much you've heard about God and the Lord Jesus Christ, but I I can tell you this. I I grew up in the Roman Catholic system, and and I learned a lot uh, about um, those things. I I was exposed to um, some of the scriptures from a very young age. I grew up hearing about the life and the death and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I didn't understand at all what was going on. I, I didn't know why Jesus came. I didn't know what was going on in his death and in his resurrection. You know, Pastor Ian invited me to church as a young teen. And several years went by and I didn't come. But there was a time when Clearly, the Spirit of God, looking back, was moving in my heart, and I agreed to go, and and I visited the church, and I I went with him some Sundays. And they were singing these songs about the blood of Jesus. I found that really weird. (laughs) Why are they singing about blood all the time? Why why are they singing about death? I get it. I know Jesus died, but why do we have to keep singing about it? And it wasn't for a number of years that the Lord in His grace and in His kindness revealed to me the answer to that question. And maybe you're here today and maybe you need to, to hear the answer to that question. See, if we could live a life that was pleasing to God, if God could look down and know us perfectly and we could live in such a way that He could welcome us into His eternal heaven, if we could do it, then Jesus didn't have to come. If we could do it, then Jesus died for no reason, and here's why. Because the reason that Jesus came to die was because he needed to pay the penalty for our sin. He he needed to die the death that you and I and every other person on this planet deserves to die. He needed to die in our place. His blood needed to cover our sins so that God the Father could look on him and he could credit to us his penalty. He could say, it's been paid in full. You don't have to pay the debt you owe. You're forgiven. It's been paid. My son, he paid the debt. And he rose from the grave victoriously over sin and death so that you could have life everlasting. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, and and this is why, you know, me and and, and so many others who maybe have been around something called a church, or even a true church, why we can't just become a better Christian. It's why we need to be born again. It's, It's why we need to die And be raised again to newness of life through the forgiveness of sins that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. That though God, 
even though God sees every second of our lives and he knows our hearts completely and fully, we can have hope of eternal life with him. And this leads to just one last response here in this section. When we think about how God knows everything about us, and that's thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. We cannot read these things and we cannot think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that he came for me, that he washed me clean, that he adopted me into his family, even though he knew everything about me. And not declare that he is worthy of all the thanks that we could ever give. He knows everything about me. And yet he loves me even still. Next, in verses 7 through 12, I want you to see this. that God is everywhere with me. God is everywhere with me. With me. Look at verse 7. David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And here we come to the second attribute of God that's very closely related to the first, and that is his omnipresence. This means that God is all present. He is everywhere at the same time. And this too for the psalmist and and for us is intensely personal. Everywhere that I am, God the Holy Spirit is there with me. There's no place I could go where this wouldn't be true. By the way, David's not saying that he'd like to do this either. He's not trying to get away from God. He doesn't desire to get away from God. He's asking these questions rhetorically because the answer is a resounding what? Nowhere. Even if anyone wanted to, they couldn't get away from God's presence. And David, he illustrates this with a series of opposite extremes. In verse 8, he says, if I ascended to heaven, you are there. If I made my bed in Sheol, you are there. he's, He's talking about the highest place anyone could possibly conceivably get to. He's, He's talking about the lowest place we could think of, the realm of the dead. He's saying, no, no matter how far up or how far down, I could go. I could never get away from the presence of God. Verse 9, he says, if I took the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there God is, is with me. Some translations talk about the wings of the dawn. This is trying to poetically um, make in our mind's eye that, that imagery of the sun rising in the east. And from that very first ray of light as it, as it crosses through the sky and it sets in the west, which for, the, for David, for the Israelites, would have been uh, over the Mediterranean Sea. He says, no, no matter where, from, from, from uh, horizon to horizon, from, from sunrise to sunset, there's nowhere I could go and not still be in the presence of God. 
In verses 11 and 12, he contrasts the darkness and the light. As he talks about the darkness, we think of the, the loneliness that darkness conveys. We, we, we think of the lostness. We, we think of the many trials of life. David says, God is with me. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is everywhere with us, and this too evokes within us several responses. There's some overlap for sure. We're thankful. We, we think of the conviction that this brings to know that we cannot escape the presence of God. There's such a weightiness here. We, we, we cannot hide under the covers from God. A couple of responses come right out of uh, verse 10. says, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. This brings such confidence, doesn't it? That no matter what, God will be right by our side. He will lead you. He will, he will guide you. That could also be translated guide. He, he will guide you. He will take you by the hand. You will lift up your head. I will be in you, Jesus said. He will hold you fast. He will never let you go. He has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. This brings such confidence as we go through this life. Right? Even though we're weak, the one who is never weak is always with us. Even when we're unsure or afraid or despairing, our God, who is always in control, is ever with us. He's our helper. He's ever with us to help us, no matter where we are. And tightly tied to this response of confidence is, is the comfort that we get from the nearness of God. The comfort that this brings when we contemplate the depths of, of God's omnipresence to know that He is always by our side. I, I love uh, how Paul Tripp talks about this. I, I have a quote I'm going to put up for you on the screen. He says, God is the ultimate present one. He has invaded my life by His grace. He is with me, for me, and in me. The hope I have is more than a theological system or wisdom principles for everyday life. My hope rests on the willing, faithful, powerful, and loving presence of God with me. It is the ultimate gift of gifts to everyone who walks the harsh and bumpy road between birth and eternity God has given us no sweeter, more beautiful gift 
than the gift of himself. I hope you find this comforting no matter what you're going through in your life. I hope you're comforted by the sure and and certain hope that God is with you everywhere that you are. I hope you think of God's presence in your life. I hope you think of that often. I, I hope looking at this psalm today would encourage your heart and draw you to deeper and deeper meditations on who God is. Next, we'll look at verses 13 through 18 and want us to see this. When I think about him, I believe God plans every day for me. God plans every day for me. In this section of the psalm, David considers every second of his existence and he proclaims that God is the sovereign ruler over all of it. And it's here we see the doctrine that theologians call God's omnipotence. Literally, this means he is all-powerful. God is able to do whatever he decides to do. And again, this is extremely personal for each and every one of us. We read the words of this psalm and we're struck by the thought that apart from God's eternal decree, we simply wouldn't be. We wouldn't exist. Look with me at verse 13. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. How about verse 15? My, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In the beginning of verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen, from the first moment of our conception, God is at work. He is the one who fashions and forms us. He is the one who puts us together, inside and out. He's the one who determines what we're going to look like. He's the one who determines what gifts and abilities we're going to excel in or not. He's the one who determines the way we're going to be, our makeup, how we're wired, how we think, what makes us laugh, what motivates us, what kind of person we're going to be. God is in charge of it all. None of it is by chance. By the way, we read these verses and We see very clearly that no one could ever claim that an unborn child is not at any stage in its development a living person created by the Almighty God. When no one else could ever possibly see what's going on in the underground, poetically speaking, there is God putting me together, putting you together in amazing detail. Again, all of this is according to his sovereign plan. He planned the first 
day, and he planned every day of the rest of my life and yours. Look down again at verse 16. Psalmist says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Just as God knows every word before it comes out of our mouths, He also knows every day of our life before we even live it. Listen, not just because He can see into the future, but because He formed it each and every day. He designed it. He planned it. He foreordained our lives. doesn't mean that we're robots. God created us magnificently in his perfect wisdom in a way that we can't fully understand in such a way that somehow we make real choices. We make meaningful decisions that have real consequences with real outcomes that correspond to our will and our volition. While at the same time, all of our choices perfectly align with his sovereign plan for our lives. Does this not blow your mind? I mean, this causes us to take a step back and and to contemplate who God is and to just be amazed afresh at this vision of God. A couple of ways that we see God's power, God's sovereign rule over our lives affect his life. Ways that we should be affected as well come come right out of the text. Again, look at verse 14. He says, I praise you. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Praise is fitting. Amen? Amen. When we meditate on the infinite power of God, and maybe even against the backdrop of all that He has made, we we think of the galaxies of the universe. We We think of the earth and all that it contains. We we think of the mountains and the seas. We think of every living thing. And then we think of the pinnacle of his creation. Human beings made in the very image of God. The most magnificent and complex of all his creation. We ought to stand in awe at the sheer wonder of the thought of this and give praise and glory to God in heaven. This is why we're made. This is why He created us. This is why He fashioned us. So that we would give Him praise. So that we would declare His glory. That we would honor Him as the only one who deserves our praise. He is so awesome. We ought to give thanks to Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to meditate on Him. We ought to tell back to Him what He is like. 
We ought to give thought to the thought of God and to the thoughts that belong to God. And, and like David exemplifies in verses 17 and 18, we ought to hold them to be so sweet, right? So valuable, so precious, it says to us. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I was reading this psalm to my kids last night. And we got to this part. And my little guy, Luke, he interrupts and he, he says, more than the sand? Like, he's like, what does that even mean? And uh, I, I began to tell him, you know, you know how small one little tiny one piece of sand is on the beach? I said, think, think about counting all of those pieces on the beach. And, and, and then my, my daughter... She pipes in. She's like, and all the beaches in, in the whole world. And Luke goes, that's impossible. <laughs> I said, that's right. And that's the point. It's impossible. There's, there, we can put a number on that. And, and yet, if we were to think of God's thoughts, it's, it's infinitely beyond every grain of sand, on every beach, on every shore. This ought to be so precious to you. You ought to hold this doctrine so near and dear to your heart. To think of the thoughts of God, the, 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 the vastness of them, the uncountable sum. Have you ever gotten a note from someone that you weren't expecting? You know, maybe an email or, or something in the mail. And, and you weren't uh, expecting that this person would be uh, thinking of you. Maybe, maybe uh, somebody that you really respect. And maybe somewhere on the note, it, it just says thinking of you. And, and you, you read these words and, and you're, you've been so encouraged. Has, has that ever happened to you? At just the right time. Right, you, you read these words. Maybe you assumed you probably wouldn't have been on that person's mind. And yet how much more of a treasure is it when that someone is God? And he says, I'm thinking of you. Each and every second of your life. It's never a day not even a moment when he's not thinking of you and when he's not powerfully working out his very specific plan for your life. I'm not quite sure what David exactly meant when he said, I'm awake and I'm still with you. It seems like um, every book I read this week uh, there was suggested a different answer to what's going on here. I mean, he, he could be um, nodding to the fact that God never sleeps nor slumbers. That, of course, he could, uh, he could be planning or executing his plan for our lives every second of our existence because, because he, he never needs to take a break. He never needs to shut his eye. 
Maybe he's talking about when, when, he, when the psalmist falls asleep, just, again, mulling over and meditating on who God is, and, and he, he can't exhaust the depths of the riches of God. And he falls asleep, and he wakes up in the morning, and he says, I'm still in his loving arms. He's still caring for me. He's still taking care of me. He's still watching over me. I'm still in his plan. When we consider these things and and we praise God, we we also implied, I I think here, is we trust him. Right? We ought to trust God. He is the all-powerful one. He's the one with the good and gracious and perfect plan for our lives. So even when we don't understand why certain things are the way they are in our lives, we can believe the words that He's given to us in the revelation of this book and we can sing the words when peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows... Like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. We don't understand why certain things have to go the way they are. And of course, when I say certain things, I mean the hard things, right? The troubling things of this life. And yet, what what we do see in the Scriptures, it's that God is working things out for those who love Him. He is working things out for our good. And He's calling us to trust Him. We don't have to understand it all. And even though we can't understand it all, we can still trust Him. God has planned every day for me. Finally, after all these thoughts of God, when I'm captivated and, and I believe that God knows everything about me, that God is everywhere with me and God plans every day for me, these deep thoughts about God ought to lead me to a deeper devotion to God. This is what we see in the last section of the psalm. God wants every part of me. God wants every part of me. He wants me to believe that He is all wise, that He is all present, that He is all powerful. He wants me to believe that He has an intimate interest in me personally. He wants me to trust that He knows me, that He's with me, that that He's governing my life for my good and for His glory. And listen, listen, here's where all of this leads. To living for Him. That's where it leads. We catch a deeper and greater vision of God and this is supposed to spur us on to a deeper intimacy, a a, a deeper devotion to holiness and living for the Lord. He wants you to, to wonder at the riches of His majesty. And He wants your wonder 
to lead to a life, a life, a whole life of worship. He wants you to be astonished at the perfections of who he is. And he wants this to lead to unreserved aspiration to live for his glory. He wants you to contemplate his infinite attributes. And he wants this to lead you to a total commitment. 100% commitment to live for him. He wants every part of you. This is what David is expressing in these final verses. He, he says, I'm with you, Lord. David declares, I am all yours. I love holiness. I want nothing to do with rebellion or with rebellious people. I want to be far as I can from sin and from evil. Look at verse 19. David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O men of blood, depart from me. David is is declaring which side he is on. The malicious enemies of God who slander God's name, verse 20, who who rise up against him, verse 21, who, who says, who who David says, I hate, verse 22. I know this is um Admittedly, this is some really strong language that the psalmist uses here, and I've really sought to understand this as best I can Uh, this week. Like I said, I I looked at several commentaries and other works, and I've sought the Lord in prayer, just earnestly trying to discern what's going on here. And and what I believe David is is saying, what, what he's doing is, I think he's using the strongest possible language that he could to mark out a separation between himself and evil and evil people. This, this, when he uses this hate language here, it's, it's a matter of alignment. He, he, he just simply will not be identified in any way with those who hate God. Going back to Psalm 1, language, he declares his commitment to the Lord that he will not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He will not stand in the way with sinners. He will not sit down in the seat with scoffers. He agrees with God that they must face their just penalty. I believe he would be happy should they repent But David declares he is with God in the matter. And he, he concludes his prayer in the final two verses, verses 23 and 24. Let's read those again. Perhaps the most famous um, words in, in maybe all of the Psalter. He, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He believes that this God that he's been meditating upon, this this infinite God in, in wisdom and in power and in presence, he believes every word that has been revealed about 
who this God is, and he says, I'm yours. I'm with you, God. He studied some of the most profound and, and, and deep truths about God, and this, this drives him to deeper devotion. That's what God intends for you and I this very day. That we would get before Him and, and in thought of who He is, we would bow our heads and we would say, I agree. I agree. This, this is the desire of my heart, O oh God, that you would see my whole life. That nothing would be hidden from your sight. That you would be with me every step of the way. That you would lead me and guide me and govern my steps. This is the desire of my heart. I want, to, I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want you to rule my life. I want you to live for me. Or I want to live for you, sorry. I want you to search me. I want you to know my heart. Let me ask you, is this the desire of your heart? That God would examine you, that, that you would invite his, his spiritual surgery, his, his diagnosis upon your life. That he would peer into the depths of your soul and, and see what you're thinking and know what you're feeling. That he would be intimately acquainted with your deepest cares and, and your fears and, and your desires. That he would look and see. If there's any way that you're acting or, or thinking or, or talking like a rebel who wanted to rule their own kingdom. If there's any offensive way in you before God, any, any attitude, any lust, any pride, any unforgiving spirit, any rejection of God's rule in your life, any way that you're wasting time that He's given you to serve Him, any way that you're neglecting to live out your, your Christ-like responsibilities. Any way that you're resisting serving others and, and sacrificially pouring into other believers to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Any way that you're not, you're not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those in your life. Anything at all that's not pleasing to the Lord. That he would make it known to you. That he would lead you to repentance. To turn away from sin. And point you and guide you in his everlasting way. Is this the desire of your heart? To go deeper in devotion to this God who reveals himself in these ways to us. We've considered a number of responses to the thought of God today. And, and this here, at the end of this psalm, this is the overarching response that this psalm calls for. That we would pray, that we would call out to God and ask Him to know us and to lead us. David, in this 
psalm, he, he tells God about God in prayer, and then he asks God to tell him about David. And we have the opportunity now as we come this afternoon to take the Lord's Supper together to do the very same thing.